Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. This episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Walker Reynolds, President and Solutions Architect of 4.0 Solutions. Walker's mission is to save and create middle-class jobs by helping manufacturers become more efficient through successful digital transformation efforts. Walker dives into the fourth and fifth industrial revolutions and how he approaches digital transformation within an industry where many companies have fallen behind. He explains how 4.0 Solutions evaluates digital capabilities within their clients' companies and what factors indicate that a company is capable of improving. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with Edge Solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations, across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so that you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dellTechnologies.com slash simplify your edge for more information or click on the link in the show notes. Two years ago, when I started the Over the Edge podcast, it was all about edge computing. That's all anybody could talk about. But since then, I've realized the edge is part of a much larger revolution. That's why I'm pretty proud to be one of the founding leaders of a nonprofit organization called the Open Grid Alliance, or OGA. The OGA is all about incorporating the best of edge technologies across the entire spectrum of connectivity, from the centralized data center to the end-user devices. The Open Grid will span the globe, and it will improve the performance and economics of new services like private 5G and smart retail. If you want to be part of the Open Grid movement, I suggest you start at opengridalliance.org, where you can download the original Open Grid Manifesto and learn about the organization's recent projects and activities, including the launch of its first innovation zone in Las Vegas, Nevada. And now, please enjoy this interview between Matt Trefiro and Walker Reynolds of 4.0 Solutions. Walker, how are you doing today? I'm blessed, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Sorry, real you quick, know- Matt, I do listen to your podcast, by the way. Is that? Yeah, well, very cool. I've actually very listened cool. to a, a couple of different ones. I get them in my Apple podcast, but I do listen to your podcast. It's just whether I get to it during the week. So I actually dig it, though. I really Wow, do. that's totally cool. Well, thank you. Nice to have another fan, and I'm definitely a fan of yours. You're sort of, in many ways, the peak of your career. You're certainly somebody who people look up to from an IoT and a manufacturing automation perspective. But how'd you get your start in technology? I mean, that story's long, so I'm going to try and do the Cliff Notes version. But, you know, I grew up in upstate New York in the 1980s. They call it the Rust Belt now, and it's when massive manufacturing exodus. Probably the manufacturing exodus that had the biggest impact on the area where I grew up was when IBM moved from Johnson City to Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. So they moved from New York to North Carolina. And there was this huge mass exodus of people who lived in the southern tier who moved to North Carolina. I actually went to college in upstate New York my freshman year, and then I transferred and I went to college in Raleigh. And so I got a chance to see with my own eyes, the impact of the manufacturing exodus on communities. And conversely, I got to see the positive impact when manufacturing came to an area. So in 1993, Raleigh and Research Triangle Park was rated by Money Magazine, the best place in America to live. And part of the reason it was rated was because all these manufacturers had migrated from the Northeast into Raleigh. Well, I I started studying sociology in college, and I took a couple of courses in employment where I I thought the reason that manufacturing left upstate New York was because manufacturers were greedy. Corporations were greedy, and they were chasing cheap labor. I learned it was much more nuanced than that. What it was was manufacturers had to chase cheap labor for a reason. And the reason they had to chase cheap labor was because they made a strategic mistake during the third industrial revolution when automation came along in the 1960s, late 1960s and 1970s. The Japanese and the Germans adopted automation much faster than American companies did. And because they didn't adopt automation so quickly, it put them at a strategic disadvantage in key markets, specifically like the automotive industry. And a lot of suppliers that were based in upstate New York, companies like Magna, they were forced to end up having to migrate to places where there was cheap labor because they didn't leverage automation either. So that's my sociological background, like my experience that made me realize, wow, manufacturing is really, really important to a vibrant middle class. I saw the middle class die in upstate New York, and I saw it grow in North Carolina with my own eyes. My education taught me the why, right? Well, 
I personally believe engineers are born. They're not taught. So I always thought like an engineer. I'm a kid who I tore apart my toys on Christmas morning. I've always been very technical, right? I went back to school and got a degree in electrical engineering after I got my first job. I got a degree in sociology. I was going to teach. I was getting a master's in education. And I got a job working in a salt mine. And I was introduced to industrial automation. The only technical training I had up to that point was I got a certification in five-volt DC systems when I worked at an arcade in college so that I could work on pinball machines and repair video games. That's it. I could read IEC drawings, and I knew five-volt DC systems. I didn't know what three-phase electricity was. I had no idea what three-phase was. I knew none of that stuff. I got introduced to industrial automation in the late 1990s with my first job out of college, and I realized everything sort of converged. Oh, wow. This is how I can help revitalize the middle class. I can help use technology to make American manufacturers more competitive in a global market. And that started my journey. (laughs) Yeah. You know, one one of the things that I really liked learning about you online has been your passion for these small and medium-sized manufacturers and really focusing on helping them become competitive on a global basis. That's really pretty neat. Now, you're the head of at least two companies I know, <laughs> one of them being 4.0 Solutions. And actually, before we go into 4.0 Solutions, you mentioned this sort of industrialization, right? And you talk often of industry 4.0, and it's kind of a buzzword. And now you've even started talking about industry 5.0. So you can just help us understand, maybe not the full arc of all the industries, because I think my audience has been through that before, but how you define industry 4.0 and how you see us transitioning to what you're calling 5.0. Russ, I'll start with this piece. Here in the United States specifically, when we say industry 4.0 and industry 5.0, what we really mean in most cases is the fourth industrial revolution and the fifth industrial revolution. We converge the terms here in the U.S. In Europe, for example, if I say industry 5.0 or industry 4.0, what they're going to talk about is a specification for the fourth Mm. industrial revolution or a specification for the fifth. Here in the United States, we really combine those two terms together. So whenever you hear me say Industry 5.0 or Industry 4.0, I'm really saying Fourth Industrial Revolution, Fifth Industrial Revolution. And the reason why I use those terms is because if you talk to the average person in the United States and they say Industry 4.0, they don't mean the EU specification for digitization of manufacturing. They mean the Fourth Industrial Revolution, right? It's just that the terms have become synonymous. Most people I don't think understand, as a sociologist – One of the things I learned was that industrialization is just a natural progression of civilization. Like industrialization isn't something we did. It's something that was self-evident. It was going to happen, right? You're going to create a printing press. So then you're going to be able to communicate en masse. You're going to create a steam engine. You're going to create some type of mechanical engine. You're going to transfer physical properties in nature into mechanical energy to do work. You're going to create an assembly line. Right. So industry 1.0 was the steam engine. Industry 2.0 was the assembly line. Industry 3.0 in 1969 was automation. It was the automation of industrial processes. Industry 4.0, fourth industrial revolution, came right after TCP IP won the protocol wars in the late 1990s. And what we had was a standard protocol for digital communications across industry. And what ended up happening with that was we could start automating business processes. So Industry 4.0, the fourth industrial revolution, is all about OTIT convergence, taking operational technology, stuff on the plant floor, merging it together with informational technology, the stuff on the carpet side of the business. And once we do that, we have that data merged, we can start automating business decisions. We can start automating our schedule, for example. If I planned on producing good A, B, C, D, and E in order – I can, by converging my data together, I can use software to determine how I should actually schedule, right? So that's the automation of business processes, automating the triggers that tell a material handler to bring the raw materials from the warehouse to a certain location on the plant floor. That's the fourth industrial revolution. The fifth industrial revolution has started, okay? And it started in November of 2022 with natural language processing. That will definitely be the rising edge of the fifth industrial revolution. And it is the convergence of artificial and human intelligence. That's what the fifth industrial revolution is. And when we talk about industry 5.0 or the fifth industrial revolution, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about being able to take the best person you have in your organization and put them on the biggest problem, no matter where in the world that biggest problem is. That's what industry 5.0 is. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. So when you look at manufacturers in the U.S., most of them, on the spectrum of 
<laughs> using large language models to improve their factory to, on the other end, like walking around with a pencil and clipboard. Where are most small and medium-sized manufacturing businesses? So you have two types of manufacturers. You have the manufacturers that'll make it and those who won't. I'm only going to talk about those who are going to make it, okay? okay? If what we do is we drop out the manufacturers that are just too far behind and they're going to either get gobbled up or they're going to get destroyed by a competition, let's talk about who's going to remain. We have a digital transformation maturity assessment on a scale of zero to 100, okay? So basically, we score organizations on a scale of one to five across 10 industry 4.0 pillars, and then we multiply by two, and that gives them a score on a scale of zero to 100. The mean score right now is about 51 out of 100, okay? So that means on the 10 pillars, the average company is less than a three, okay? They're at about 2.6, 2.7, give or take. The standard deviation is about 15, okay? So if you look at Tesla, who is two standard deviations above the mean, Tesla is number one in the world. When it comes to digital, there is no more digital company on the planet. It's not even close, Okay, honestly, they're an 87 aggregate score. The next closest company is about an 82 and a half. And that is a huge difference on the edges. I mean, that is a massive difference. Tesla is so far ahead of the game. The average company is right about on the mean. And what does the mean mean? It means that they're strong in maybe three of the areas and they're weak in seven of them. They have intelligence on the plant floor. They got intelligence on the IT side, but they don't have them connected. That's the average business. We talk about this. If you look at the automation stack, right? You've got PLC, HMI on the edge. You've got supervisor control and data acquisition. You've got manufacturing execution layer. You have ERP, which is most people are familiar with the ERP layer. And you have cloud. The average organization, about 90% of manufacturers in our sample set, which is 1,380 something companies, that middle layer is all paper. MES is where the sales order becomes manufacturing. And in 90% of companies, that is- Like, like literally- It's literally paper. wood. Right. It's literally <laughs> wow. paper on a clipboard. It's people carrying a traveler, literally physically taping it to a pallet. That's the average company. They have no insight into their operations in real time. At best, they may have like daily transactions- so that I'm running a transaction and I'm collating all that paper together to give me insight on where we actually stand. The most elite organization in the world, Tesla, for example, doesn't even look at today. <laughs> They're not even looking at right now. Their operation is so, so digitally integrated all the way up through their supply chain. If you look at St. Cobain, who supplies windows for the Tesla vehicles, Tesla has insight into St. Gobain's inventory in real time, and it is taken into account in their planning for manufacturing vehicles. They're not even looking at today. They're looking at next week and next quarter. That's what they're looking at when they look at real time. They're looking at predictions for next week, next month, next quarter in real time. That's why when I see these analysts on CNBC talking about Tesla, you know right away the analyst who has no idea what they're talking about. Because as an engineer, when you walk into a gigafactory and you walk the plant floor, if you've worked in automotive at any time in your life and you walk into a gigafactory and you go from one end to the other, you come out on the other side. If you work for Toyota or General Motors or Ford, you walk out on the other side going, we're out of business. You don't walk out on the other side going, I have an idea to improve our business. You walk out saying, I need a different job. That's how far ahead Tesla is. And they're only at 87, you said? They're at 87, yeah. 87. Yeah. That's quite a delta. So you mentioned the companies that aren't going to make it and the yeah. companies that are make it. Are you saying that, that there's a bunch of companies at the median, 50-ish on the score, they're still mostly doing it on paper, and you think they can up their score on those other pillars and... Yeah, absolutely no question. How do we determine whether they ask us to evaluate? Do they have a chance to change it? Yeah, the answer is really this. Do you have transformative and disruptive leadership in your organization? We'll talk about the leadership piece. Does the people at the helm of your organization understand what digital transformation actually is? Okay, number one. And what is it? Well, it's about unlocking potential on the plant floor to start. To start... It's about just unlocking potential. It's, you know, the smartest people in any manufacturing organization, they are the people who do the actual work on the plant floor. I, if there's any, the greatest lesson my father ever gave me when I graduated from college, I was the first one to graduate from college in my family. Before I went to go get a job working in the salt mine, and I only had a degree in sociology, by the way, at that point, my father said to me, nothing you learned in school makes a bit of difference in the real world. He said, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you, but nothing you learned in college makes a bit of difference in the real world. And what he said is, your real education starts today. 
And he said, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. He said, when you go to work in that salt mine, okay, you're going to see two types of college educated people. You're going to see the college educated person who thinks they know everything. And you're going to see the college educated person who's there to get a new education. He said, you need to be the latter. And he said, so what you need to do is you need to find somebody who's got 20 or 30 years of experience. You go in humble and you learn everything you can about what they know. And then you take what you learned in school and you put them together. He said, that's what your five-year plan needs to be. My father was so right about that. Hmm. What I ended up learning was that the most valuable commodity in the American economy is the human worker. It's the worker. It's the person who does the actual work on the plant floor. And I used to say this all the time. When I was an electrician early in my career, I was an electrician. I would literally go to the operators and I would say this. I would say, you know what my problem is. If I get ever get called out here to fix something, you already know what's wrong. You may not know how to say it in the technical terms, but you're the key to me getting this fixed in 10 minutes rather than three hours. Mm. I'm going to do something for you. Number one, if, it's, if you're ever at fault for the reason it's broken, that is you screwed up, I'm always going to cover for you. I will always come up with a different reason why it broke as long as you always tell me the truth about what the problem is, okay? And that was one of the smartest things I ever did in my career because <laughs> it opened up a line of communication between me and the operators that many of the other engineers, many of the other company people just did not have. And what I realized was, holy cow, if you could unlock that potential in all these operators, you could solve the manufacturing exodus problem in the United States overnight. If you could suddenly be able to figure out how to tap into the operator's knowledge and enable them to solve the business's problems, you would solve manufacturing in the United States overnight. And that's what digital transformation does. I ask executives all the time, what is your plan for recruiting and retaining the employee of the future? And who is the employee of the future? Yeah. If you look at retention for Gen Z and millennials in manufacturing today, it's less than 50% at the 12-month mark. So if I hire somebody who's a millennial to work in my manufacturing facility, there is a 51% chance or greater they're going to quit within the first 12 months. I'm a Gen X guy. That was a 10% number for my mm -hmm. generation, right? There was a 10% chance that they were going to leave. Now there's a 51% chance they're going to leave. Why? Because they don't want to work at 50 years in the past. You have right. to – the employee – make it a video game. Right. They are used to solving their own problems in their daily life. They're not used to – the data on a need to know basis, you know, right. not being able to access their cell phone on the plant floor, which by the companies that don't have Wi-Fi for their employees, that just seems so ridiculous to me. It's that kind of thing. Digital transformation is about enabling the frontline worker to solve your company's problems. That's how it starts. Okay. That's not the journey for well, I was going to ask you how many humans are on the floor of the gigafactory. There are, well, when we say floor, do we mean um, standing on the concrete or sitting in chairs and control rooms? Fair right? enough. Yeah. Right? If you look at the total number of employees that Tesla employs, they employ a lot of people. Okay. They employ a lot of people. Tesla plays a much bigger role in the survival of their suppliers than the average auto manufacturer does. Okay. Because there is a value proposition that Tesla provides that other manufacturers don't provide. And that is access to the data that Tesla collects. Tesla is not a car company. They're a data company who manufactures cars. Giga wasn't designed to make cars. It was designed to make everything. What's the future of manufacturing? It's contract manufacturing. You're still going to have vertically integrated businesses and specialized manufacturing. But the vast majority of our manufacturing is going to be contract. Certainly 70 to 80%. In the life sciences industry, for example, if you're a life sciences company who is vertically integrated from research all the way out to, you know, your sales force selling the drugs to your drug, right. you're dead. I mean, you're, you bet you're not going to be manufacturing your own drugs. Okay. You will not be manufacturing your own drugs. You'll be, sent, you'll be sending a, yeah, a digital yeah. file that. Right. You're going to be sending a digital file to the people who have mastered the art of manufacturing drugs right. in bioreactors. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So let's talk about the leadership. You mentioned the leadership, right? So I imagine you can't get much done without leadership support. How do you get leadership on board? Well, okay. So number one, the first thing I do, what we do with leaders is we want to find out what their values are. Okay. So you're going to ask me about my companies and we are a values-based organization. 
And what I mean by values is our mission is to help save and create middle-class jobs in the U.S. To that end, one of the things that we did when we first started was we worked with oil and gas customers who could afford to pay in a premium for our services so that we could pass on that premium to mom-and-pop manufacturers who couldn't afford to pay what oil and gas customers did. So we used to say to our oil and gas clients, and we still do to this day, not just oil and gas, but life sciences as well, the industries that pay the premium because they're difficult to work with, right? Or they want it done two weeks ago. So they're going to pay a higher price to try and get it done as fast as possible. We tell them one of the values of working with us is that we are going to pass on the premium you're paying. And sometimes we're going to do projects at a loss or at net zero for manufacturers who can't afford to do what you're doing. We're passing that on. We're a values-based organization, right? So one of the first things we try to ascertain from leaders is what are their values? What are their core values? What do they believe in, yeah. right? I mean, is are they purely capitalist? That is to the extreme where people are a commodity. They're not a resource, right? So assuming that the organization shares our values, then what we want to do is we want to ask them three questions. Question number one is, how do you lead? What's your job as a leader? And if we don't get an answer like it's our job to transform or disrupt or enable, if we don't hear those keywords, transform, disrupt, enable, then we know we're probably – they don't have the right leadership, okay? Mm-hmm. If they don't believe that they need to have a strategy for making products that get better after customers buy them, then we're probably working with the wrong leaders, right? If they don't think the right way – then we're probably not working with the right leaders. Now, that doesn't mean we can't work with that company, but they have to understand they need to bring in leadership who understands those things that are missing. Okay, so the leadership piece is all about strategy and enablement. We have a strategy for becoming a digital company, and we're going to make products that get better after people buy them. We have a strategy for recruiting and retaining the employee of the future by enabling to solve their own problems, which in turn solve the business problems. That's what you're looking for in leadership. That's what you're looking for, Okay. The Then what you're looking for beyond that is do you have the pieces within the organization to identify the problems in the business and enable their solutions? That's the next step. We have a process called the Digital Transformation Maturity Assessment that does all of that, and that's what we teach. At 4.0 Solutions, one of the things we teach other integrators is how to assess. Here's the questions you need to be asking. Here's how you overcome these specific objections. Here's how you identify the caveman, the citizen against virtually everything. Here's how you overcome the immovable object within the organization. Here's how you plot a course for success. Got it. Now, you mentioned 4.0 Solutions, one of your companies. What is the purpose of 4.0 Solutions? All right. So so I I have 49 companies altogether, but five of my companies are in the automation space. Okay. Let's talk about those. So I'm going to talk about just the two most important, which are Intellic Integration was my full service systems integrator, where when I worked for another, I worked for a couple of like world-class integrators. I was manager of Texas operations for this big integrator based in California. And I came home one day and said to my wife, you know, I think I can do this better. I think I can create the type of place where I would want to work. Mm -hmm. Because I think the biggest problem in our industry is the way that integrators are organized right now. That is the vendor relationship. The vendor has too much say in the recommendations that an integrator makes to a client. The way that they structure the business, applications engineer, senior engineer, junior, the apps and the senior engineer are the ones who are selling everything. You know, they're overselling and underdelivering, and then they're turning it over to a junior who doesn't have nearly the technical capabilities that those senior engineers have. So I was saying to my wife, I can create a place that I think does it better. And the goal will be, mission-driven, values-based, and high retention. So we want super, super low turnover. Mm. Intellic integration was always focused on digital transformation. We got famous by building the world's largest standalone SCADA system in the world, actually, at a fraction of the cost of the next nearest quote. It was 150th, the next nearest quote, or 125th. Here's what happened. I wanted low retention. For three years, my engineers were, we were basically just coming behind other integrators And And fixing. Fixing, okay. (laughs) And what we realized was all the same mistakes were being made. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like this integrator made this mistake and that integrator made this other mistake. It was the integrator working with their vendor and the end user were all making the exact same mistakes in the first try. 
Okay. And it would basically boil down to three things. They had the wrong strategy. They picked the wrong technology. They were using the wrong partners. That's it. If, from a, if you're going to distill it, it's one of those three. So we started shooting YouTube videos in 2018. Initially, the YouTube stuff came from Zach Scriven, who's he's our media partner. Zach used to be an integrator. I've been friends with him for a very long time. He starts a media company. He's like, do you want to sponsor my podcast? Yes. I wanted to help him out. So I'm like, why don't I just hire you to shoot content for us? The deal is I will not be in front of the camera, though. So you cannot ask me to get in front of the camera. He says, okay. <laughs> that didn't last very long. <laughs> it lasted only six months. That's it. Zach tricked me. He said, hey, come out here. I want you to shoot a whiteboard video. I have a, a video editor in the Philippines who doesn't understand what we do. I want you to explain to that video editor what digital transformation is. And I started with the automation stack. And when he published those videos, that's why I'm not wearing a mic. He just tricked us. And it, they all went viral. So what we realized from that moment was education was what we could provide. So we started just educating on the mistakes people are making. Okay, here's the mistake the vendor's making. Here's the mistake the OEM is making. Here's the mistake that the end user's making. What ended up happening was a couple of years in, you know, we grow this huge following and we create a, a Discord server to bring everybody together. And once we had everyone together and the people who were following us could communicate to us directly easily, the first thing they asked for was more educational content. And so we created a separate entity to manage that. So our goal at 4.0 Solutions is education and outreach, because I think the best ideas have to win. And the best way to do that is to share all the ideas. So that's, that's our goal. We have, we have free content and we have commercial content. And the only commercial stuff we have helps us fund. I mean, this is very, I don't need to tell you guys you this. This is very expensive to do. I mean, yeah. um, I've spent millions of dollars since 2018. I think I'm over 2.1 million just on digital media. And I haven't made $2.1 million on digital media, but I indirectly, I think I've certainly gotten my money back. But our goal is to help educate the industry and, and keep people from making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Also, so tell it, it's tell the, it still does the system integration work? Still does. And, and the, way we're, the way we're actually um, structured, 4.0 Solutions has essentially seven products, right? So we have, we do vendor training. So vendors, instead of them having to develop their own training programs, the vendor can come to us and we can, we create a training program. program. Yeah. That's program great. for them. We have enterprise training for really large manufacturers. So in, uh, if they want to do digital transformation, have every employee go through it, really, really big companies hire us to do their entire digital transformation program. Then at IIoT.university is where we do all of our core stuff, all of our workshops. Like we're doing ChatGPT on Wednesday. We're doing our second session, ChatGPT. We did a MES boot camp. We have mentorship, which is a where we teach engineers how to support digital transformation. That's a recurring program. So we meet once a month. This year, we're doing a virtual factory. We're actually digitally transforming a virtual factory this year with the mentorship program. And the mastermind program is where we're teaching the leaders how to guide how to lead these programs, strategy, architecture, minimal technical requirements. And what's amazing, this is the most amazing thing to me, Matt. My team just gave me all the, the metrics on our training mm -hmm. programs. Our churn rate, so that we have people who have been in these programs for three years, and our churn rate is less than 10% year over year. It's like 8%, 8.1%. The, the same people are signing up just to get the, the constant retraining. That's they're, nice. They're recurring every year, yeah. And, and the, at the end of the day, you know, there's a guy named Dave Schultz who made this joke I think it, you know, summarizes what it is we've been trying to do. He said, you know, I learn more here by accident than I do in other places on purpose. <laughs> you know? and, and so that at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to educate. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the happy accident story, right? It's like, well, I set out to do system integration and I ended up starting a media company. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and at the end, I never wanted to be in front of the camera. This, the whole camera thing and shooting the podcast and, all of that's been pushed by our team. I, and I think that's part of what makes it good, right? Like, it's just like, oh, Walker's here. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not known for being very diplomatic. Exactly. exactly. So let's do some educating. So sure. walk me through a small manufacturer. So you go to a small manufacturer. Let's say they're at the 50% mark, got a bunch on paper. What does the factory floor look like? What's there technologically? And where do we start? How do we add things into this system? How about I give you an actual example? We're a Kepware partner. So that is PTC's Kepware. If you were to go to Kepware's website and look for an integrator who does Kepware integration, 
our company will come up, right? What is Kepware? What do they build? So Kepware builds what is known as an OPC server. Basically, it is a OT communications translator. What it does is it's a piece of software that runs like on a desktop, and it has drivers that lets it talk to any of the smart things you have on the plant floor. So it has a driver for Siemens PLCs, and it has a driver for Allen Bradley PLCs. And so what you can do is you can take all of these various languages, you know, that Siemens and Rockwell and do more PLCs talk, and you can put them in one place. You can pull the data and put it in one place in one common language known as OPC UA. That's what Kepware does. That's called an OPC. So it normalizes all these like bespoke languages that each manufacturer probably used to lock people in at some point. That's exactly the point. Yes. So, um, so what happened was we were called to a local manufacturer here, a small organization that was doing say 25 million a year in revenue. They're in the packaging industry, privately owned. In fact, the guy who owned the facility, he used to be an executive for a really large packaging company in Europe. He retired. He came here. He bought a small mom and pop organization and he wanted to hand it off to his kids. It was something to give to his kids when he was gone, right? Okay, so let's describe packaging. What does a packaging factory make? Like literally, what do they make? So they, you know, in this case, they could make something like this, right? This is this is made by a company called Tetra Pak, which is one of their competitors. Okay, but the packaging these guys were making is imagine the bags that potato chips and pretzels come in, right? There's art that has to go. So they have a printing operation, they have a lamination operation, they have a slitting operation, and they got a pouch operation, and they do, you know, say $25 million a year in revenue. You go to the store, go in the chip aisle, and they're supplying half the packaging in that aisle, right? Okay. So they brought us there, and the goal was we just want to connect to our equipment. We have millions and millions and millions of dollars of assets, but we just want to be able to talk to the equipment. We don't know if a machine's running or not running, and what we want to do is we want you to put Kepware here and talk to this equipment. They were asking us to solve a problem based on what they knew. Our job was to walk in on the plant floor, solve the immediate problem, but also identify the art of the possible. What else could they do? Right. So what we did, we said, we'll do what you asked, okay? But in exchange, what we want is we want you to give us access to this printing press, this Italian printing press over here. Give us 12 weeks and let us do whatever we want to it. Let us show you what's possible. And all you have to do, and I'll pay for it. Walker will pay for it. In 12 weeks, I'll show you what you should do with your whole organization. If you like it, you buy it, and we do the rest of the facility. If you don't, we'll rip it out, and you'll never hear from us ever again. Now, the point is, is that that manufacturer, they had already mastered the art of what they did. Everything was on paper, but they had a small industrial database where they were storing information about downtime and that kind of stuff. They had state-of-the-art technology on their equipment, but they weren't connected to any of it. In fact, that printing press was running a state-of-the-art motion control package from Siemens led by a DH-445 motion controller, like state-of-the-art stuff, super, super high-frequency data. There was also a database running on that press where every time the operator put in a work order number, the process data was being associated with that work order number for years, for like five or six years, and they didn't do anything. They had no idea that that was there. Our we have five job, years of data from the database that's just sitting on a hard drive inside this They had no printer. idea, right? So what we did was, I, and I led this initiative initially, so I did the first year of this, but for the first, the proof of concept, we said, we're going to do three things. What we're going to do is we're going to look and see what's in that database on that machine and see if we can provide some value from it. Number two, we're going to analyze their operators. We're going to tell them which of their operators, what the personalities of their operators are, okay? And number three, we're going to show them the actual downtime that they have on that machine. Because what they had was the operators were keeping track of downtime in 15-minute increments on paper. They were, you know, writing down, oh, and they had to always put it in a 15-minute block. Well, I don't have to tell you, that means a one-minute downtime never got logged, a five-minute downtime never got logged, a seven and a half minute downtime never got logged. Unless it was close to 15 minutes, it didn't get logged at all. Right. So we took 12 weeks, we put in a digital system, a single pane of glass, we connected to their database and we got lucky. We discovered that when the operators were typing in the work order number on their HMI, we were able to tie all the process parameters through that work order back to a specific item number, a package that they were making. 
And we were able to show them over time hundreds of work orders where they were running the exact same product and they were running the machine completely differently. Different speeds, different tensions, different temperatures. That There was no consistency between operator A, B, C, D, and E running the same product on the exact same process. That was number one. Number two, we were able to tell them their highest performing operator. We didn't talk to any of their operators. We said, this operator right here is your highest performer. This operator right here, number four, that's your rogue one. That's the one that doesn't listen to anything you say. We didn't know who they were. And then the last thing was we showed them their actual downtime. And when they realized that they were only capturing about 40% of all the actual downtime, they saw, wow, we don't really have any visibility into our process. So the average manufacturer has technology everywhere, but they're not unlocking the value of that technology. Interesting. Okay, so you mentioned a couple of acronyms. Just the benefit of my audience that doesn't live in this world. Can you just yep. quickly define what those are? PLC is a programmable logic controller. So all it is is a little computer that you can connect sensors to, and it's got logic that runs. And based on what the inputs say, we do things to the outputs. That's a PLC. Every asset on a plant floor is controlled by a PLC. HMI is human machine interface. That's a little touchscreen you see on all the machines. In OPC, in a nutshell, the acronym itself is not important. You can go look at the OPC Foundation. It is basically a standard for open interoperability. So Hmm. if you see our OPC server, it's a server that's an extension of the OPC standard. OPC Foundation is the organization that controls the standard. Okay. So when I think of uh, PLC... Programmable logic controller, did I get that right? Connecting to a device, I don't think of a network. I think of like serial cables. Yep. Are these PLCs networked together? Because you mentioned and Ethernet, like the big unlock. Yep. Are they connected together? They are now. So if we go with just like the PLCs that everyone knows, if you look at, say, Rockwell Slick 505s. So right now we're in the control logics family. So before control logics, we had slicks. Before that, you had PLC5. So the slick family is the 90s. At the end of the 90s, there were 505 versions that came out that had Ethernet ports on them natively, so you could plug them into an Ethernet network. But the limitation was is that they weren't talking Ethernet the way like our laptop does. They Mm. were talking primarily industrial protocol and Ethernet IP. Today, PLCs, like over my shoulder, I have a PLC Next. I have an Opto 22 Groove Epic over there. They talk native Ethernet as if it's a standard device over TCP IP on your network. The vast majority of PLCs, actually all of them that you buy today, they're treated really like industrial edge devices. So, you know, imagine I took an industrial PC, I put it on the plant floor and I wrote a little program on it and I plugged in the network. That's how PLCs are operating today. In a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, on a standard thing. Yeah. yeah. So now I've got a network in my factory, right? And I've got all these machines generating this data, maybe in incompatible ways. But I have some software, some part of my software stack. The company you mentioned at the beginning has the way of normalizing across all these other devices. Yeah. Now I can see how now I've got some centralized ability to collect data and to enact based on that that data. But we also talk about, well, two things. Okay, so one thing is we talk about IIoT, Industrial Internet of Things. There's an internet part in there. I haven't heard you talk about the internet at all. This is all like a private land. It sounds like in in some cases, it's an industrial land that doesn't even align with the regular land. Tell me what percentage of the IIoT is actually on the internet? And how do you think about that? Okay, so a very, very tiny percent is on the internet. It's a lot better to think in the industrial world, a very high percentage in a digitally transformed organization, all of the smart things in your business are on the intranet which is the internal internet for your business, okay? But it doesn't have access to the internet, which is where all the bad guys are, okay? Or ostensibly the bad guys. A very, very tiny percentage of industrial hardware in the industrial internet of things are actually on the internet. And this is, we're talking single digits here, okay? Generally, what it's gonna be is a data aggregator inside the intranet has a connection over the wide area network, which passes through the internet into the cloud, okay, where I have another intranet within the cloud in my own private local area network in the cloud. So I'll have a data connector or, you know, a data aggregator, and then I'm connected to some hub in the cloud, and then I go back into the private network on that side. What's important is the technology you use in order to make those connections, right? So edge-driven, report by exception, lightweight. Edge-driven means that I'm never requesting for data, okay? In the old serial networks, 
you had to have a yeah poll yeah you're constantly yeah, polling yeah poll, poll response yeah. right i yeah. i have to check for a change most of the technology by the way is still designed that way it still requires poll response which by the way right. you can't scale you're not going to be able to collect all right. data doing poll response so you need the smart thing matt needs to tell me what changed and when rather than me requesting a hey matt has anything changed Hey, Matt, has anything changed? At set interval, Matt just connects to me and says, hey, this value changed. Here's the new value, and here's when it changed. That's edge-driven. Mm-hmm. Report by exception is the piece. You're only sending me the stuff that changed. And lightweight means is I'm using a protocol that doesn't have a huge header at the front end that, to instantiate the connection. It's not very verbose. So every time we communicate, I'm not wasting a lot of information in setting up the communication. Right. Well, and it, it, it sounds like maybe we should call it the industrial intranet of things. <laughs> Today, that would be much more appropriate, a term, yeah. the industrial intranet of things. Now, what I will say is this. If you look at digital transformation for an organization, it, it looks the same for everybody, by the way. It happens in two giant steps. The goal of the organization is to become a smart business. That's mm-hmm. number one. A smart business is connected. Okay. That is all the smart things are connected together. Number two We store every data, every transition, and then we use software to find patterns in our data, predict problems, and mitigate those problems. That's what a smart business is, okay? Mm -hmm. The second step is plugging into a digital supply chain. So if you look at supply chain, supply chain is, you know, linear. Generally, in the old economy, I only talk to the links directly upstream from me and the links directly downstream. And I only talk to the suppliers who I have relationships with, and I only talk to the customers I have relationships with. A digital supply chain is I plug into a hub and spoke, and I am able to make requests to all of the suppliers who could possibly supply me, the ones I know and the ones I don't know. And I am plugged into all the customers, I could my total addressable market. That's a digital supply chain. What does the journey for an organization look like? Well, number one, in that first phase where I'm becoming smart, My goal is to connect, collect, store, analyze, visualize, find patterns, report on those patterns, and solve problems. And the first journey is connect, collect, store, analyze, visualize. Get my data and information on a screen, okay? The second part where I plug into a digital supply chain is much more challenging because the way I plug into a digital supply chain and, and how I go to market is what my competitive advantage is. This is why organizations saying, what is my plan for making products to get better after the customer buys them is yeah. such an important question to ask because when I'm plugged to all customers, I want to be able to collect data from the products that I've already sold to someone. I want to be able to improve those products and I want to be able to push the improvements to that customer. Now people will say, well, what about consumables bread? How are you going to do that with bread? Well, okay. Let's say I'm a bread manufacturer. Mm-hmm. What's some data that would be really valuable to me? Okay. Number one, the relative humidity and temperature of all, you know, as I'm transporting my bread after it's left my, my facility, if I were able to monitor relative humidity and temperature from the moment it leaves my distribution center to the moment it gets completely consumed, that would be incredibly valuable data for a bread manufacturer to have. How long did it sit on the floor in the back room of the grocery store where it's not climate controlled before it was put on the shelf in the grocery store where it is climate controlled, right? right? All this data, even, even on the consumable side, there's events that organizations can benefit from. And that's what the digital supply chain is all about. Yeah, that's really smart. It's a very interesting way of thinking about it. It certainly provokes me to think of new use cases, right? The bread example is really good. So most of these aren't on the internet or not directly on the internet. There's an aggregator that's maybe pushing some data up to the cloud. But for a lot of the things we want to do on the factory floor, we may need cloud economics and cloud resources, right? So let's say that we're doing you know, computer vision, right? So we got cameras, we're collecting a lot of data, a lot more than a plus or a minus, and then we're running you know, 4K video maybe through an AI inferencing algorithm that might be running on a rack of servers with NVIDIA GPUs. And that seems very different from what the factory can support today. It's not that the factory can't support it today. It's that the factory chooses not to support it today. Okay, talk to me about that. Now, we're not talking about Tesla here. If we talk about Tesla, or we talk about, let's say, Volkswagen in the United States, or we talk about this company, Waterfleet, based in you know southern Texas, or you talk about the companies who are all in the top 10 
They're two standard deviations above the mean in their digital maturity. They're all in on cloud. Yeah. I mean, they are all in on cloud. It is not the industrial intranet of things. It is the industrial internet of things. The reason why is because they understand the risk and the reward of leveraging the technology, right? But let's say that you're the risk-averse organization. Well, what you're going to do is you're going to come up with some mitigation strategy where I can leverage cloud, but I don't have to be connected to cloud all the time, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to collect data. I'm going to buffer it. I'm going to open a window to the internet for some amount of time. I'm going to go ahead and pump that data up there. I'm going to train a model. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to deploy that model back to the edge and close that connection, right? So now that model's running on the edge. I'm using edge compute to look for the patterns that the model has looked for. I'm looking at current state, comparing for these patterns, and then you know, saying I'm 96% certain we've seen this before, and this is going to be the likely outcome here. All that's running on the edge. I don't need to be connected to the cloud to do that other than to take the raw events, get them up to the cloud so I can train the model. That's a very, very common implementation right now. Is that what we recommend for our clients? Of course not. Should you be scared of putting your data on the internet? No, you should not be scared of putting your data on the internet. I openly challenge people. Are there risks out there? Absolutely. Do the risks outweigh the reward of leveraging cloud compute? Absolutely not. Not even close. It's not even remotely close. Okay. At the end of the day, you are either innovating or you're dying. Okay. And the companies who look at the horsepower, that pure horsepower that's available, most organizations, even if they wanted to put that kind of horsepower in their facility, the grid can't right. even They don't have the electricity. They don't have the staff. They don't want to be in the data center business. That's right. That's right. And, it, you know, it's funny. Dell sponsors your podcast, right? One of the things that I've talked about, and I don't know if you know this. I've mentioned this in previous podcasts. You know, I've said to everyone, you watch out for Dell, okay? Based on who I talk to, you know, Dell's making a play on the industrial side, and it's not just edge compute. You know, at the end of the day, Michael and that group at Dell gets it. The group at Amazon Web Services at AWS, they get it. The group at AWS gets it. That that the you, what we're not cloud isn't the top layer in the stack. What it is, the stack is getting compressed. It's becoming flat, right? And what we're doing is we're using technology to protect it. So edge driven, report by exception, lightweight, right? Certification, that kind of stuff. So at the end of the day, cloud is the future. The good news is the noise coming out of Hanover Messy from last week is that with each year, companies are becoming much more amenable to cloud technology over on-prem. Yeah. And there's a new category of, you know, it's not even hybrid, but it's a new category of where to place the cloud or the cloud-like compute that we're starting to call near-premises. And that is to say, look, there's a data center facility that you don't have to own that you can put your own equipment in or Dell's equipment or HP's equipment or Amazon's equipment, potentially, that you could go kick if you wanted to. So it is near, right? And it can be delivered over a private network, your own fiber at land speed. So you can have that sort of real time, but you don't have to be in the data center business. And then you have sort of like the privacy and performance of on-premises, but the you're starting to get the cloud economics. And by the way, we haven't even touched containerization, Docker, Kubernetes, or any of the safety elements that come from being able to leverage cloud with Docker-style deployment of infrastructure, right? So where what I'm doing is I'm scaling up and scaling down based on immediate need. We are automating the process of scaling up corporate infrastructure based on immediate demand and then immediately scaling it down within the next hour so that I can go from having enough horsepower to manage five users to having enough horsepower to manage 5,000 users within minutes, and then literally decommissioning 4,995 of the connections so that I now only have the horsepower for five, and I'm doing that on demand. And I'm doing that being able to automate the creation and deployment and then destruction of containers through cloud compute. And we didn't even get into any of those technical elements. At the end of the day, when I do these podcasts, I generally don't get technical. I try to stay 10,000, 5,000 foot because if you look, the addressable audience generally is about 50% layperson, right? Yeah. And then 50% I find. You know, are looking at the technology. At the end of the day, there is no reason for anyone to be scared of cloud. I like your point here. I say this all the time. When you hear cloud, you think some server yeah. off in the, and when I hear cloud, I think something at the top of the stack. 
And that thing at the top hmm. of the stack could be in the data center down the hall. It doesn't have to be, you know, out in the big bad unknown. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, definitely. So let's talk about real time. You mentioned real time early on. As manufacturers move from this kind of like, you know, collect and react to on this, I don't know, human time almost, right? Which is a little better than clipboards and spreadsheets, but it gets real time, machine speed, you know, milliseconds and microseconds. What happens? What does that bring me in the factory? Well, we'll talk about it in two points from a digital perspective and a human perspective. All right. So at the end of the day, from a digital perspective, the greatest advantage to connecting, collecting, storing all data. So that is not just the stuff I think is important, all data is that we can use software to find patterns in data we can't see with the naked eye. There are patterns in our data that human beings will never see. Relationships, correlations, for every value X, what's the likely outcome Y? It's really easy for me to write a linear regression that comes up with every value or every value Y for every value X, likely value Y for every value X, as long as I know what X and Y are. The real advantage in collecting all my data and using software to find those patterns is you can use machine learning algorithms to tell you what X and Y are. Not, I think there's a relationship between this value and that value, but by collecting and storing and then analyzing that data, we can find patterns we can't see. That's number one. So that's the piece, you know, it's like when people talk about full self-driving with Tesla and how it's a pipe dream and all this stuff. And I think, you know, I use full self-driving every single day. Literally, my car drove me to the office today. It does it every day. I never intervene. I'm not sure what people are talking about. That's AI. That's machine learning and artificial intelligence, right? When it comes to the human piece of real time, human beings have always been very good at, I mean, we're great at troubleshooting. We're great at innovating. Human beings are outstanding at innovation, and we're great at troubleshooting. You know what we're really bad at? Collecting data. (laughs) We're terrible at collecting data, by the way. In a world-class organization, like in Japanese organizations that are world-class with human data collection, if they get 60% fidelity, that means if the human being collected 60% of the data accurately, that's a world-class number with human collection. That's world-class, okay? So what you want is you want to collect data digitally and have human beings solve problems, troubleshoot, and innovate with data from real time compared to historical data. That's what you want. What the operator gets is I get insight into where I actually am right now. How efficient am I? Is my waist high? Is it low? I think it might be high. I might think it might be low. Is my downtime high? Is it low? How am I operating relative to the way I should be operating? Right? I have immediate insights into state, right? That's the biggest advantage of real time data. But the biggest value to the business is comparing real time to past collecting it all. And yeah, yeah. it's the comparison, the comparative analysis to real time against what we've done historically. Yeah, that's really interesting. So one of the one of the things you mentioned, you talked about Tesla a lot and clearly you're a fan, you're an owner. And they let they let us talk about Tesla. And they they let you you talk about Tesla. Okay. challenges is that most organizations don't allow us to mention their name. And free speech. You can mention their names as long as they're not a client. Well, one of your other companies that you're very fond of is Amazon. So what is Amazon doing right that makes you so excited to talk about them and use them as a model? So two things. Number one, I use Amazon to talk about how they collect all data points and they use technology to predict the future. Okay, so I use that example. But the big one I do is I use Amazon as the example of transformative and disruptive leadership, right? So there's this famous email from Jeff Bezos. I think it was 2002. He wakes up at like two o'clock in the morning and he says, you know, we share entirely. This is, by the way, this is only three years after TCP IP wins the protocol wars, right? So you, we couldn't possibly have been more in the infant stages of industry 4.0, right? Of the fourth industrial revolution. The rising edge, by the way, of the fourth industrial revolution is 1999 when TCP IP won the protocol wars. He says, we share entirely too much data and information manually. We share too much through email. We share too much through spreadsheets. We share too much manually. So Matt creates value out of data. He turns it into information. He emails it to Walker. And then the guy who's sharing the cubicle right across from Matt does the exact same thing and shares it with somebody else. And we've repeated that work. What we really need to do is when Matt comes up with that great idea, we need to have an infrastructure where now everyone benefits from that value Matt created. So he writes this email and he says, effective tomorrow morning, 8 a.m., You cannot share data manually anymore. You're going to build services. 
every group is going to build services to serve data to the consumers. Okay. And, you know, over the next 18 months, they turned over I know, somewhere between 11 and 18% of their work, their workforce. They literally, zero tolerance. They literally, mm. at the bottom of the email, it said, <laughs> you will be fired if, if you're not publishing data. <laughs> if you're not publishing data, right? That became Amazon Web Services. Mm. So when you go to AWS, you are literally in the exact same infrastructure that Amazon runs its business in. Mm. Okay, the exact same infrastructure, no difference. But here's what Amazon does. I ask people all the time, why is Amazon awesome? You look at how much money I spend at Amazon, they better be pretty damn awesome because I spent a lot of money in Amazon. How is it that they can get 98% of all the things they sell to 99% of all Americans in 48 hours or less? How do they do that? I know. You can order something at 6 o'clock and it's there at 3 in the morning. You're like, how, how did they do that? Well, the answer is they know what you're going to buy 60 days before you buy it. They don't know Matt's going to buy it. Right. No, that's what they do. So Michael Brown worked at Amazon and he's now with a provider Amazon, but he was an architect at Amazon. And, you know, we talked about what does Amazon actually do? Well, what they do is they look at human, they look at lots of data points, all digital data points. And what they're doing is they're predicting what you will buy 60 days before you buy it. Not what Matt's going to buy, but what's so they they forward deploy inventory and then pull the supply chain based on what they know somebody like me is going to do in my neighborhood. And they do it to 98% accuracy. That's incredible. The only way that's possible, the only way you can train models like that, you know this already because you've already made references to artificial intelligence that only those in the know can make. The only way is that you have all the data points. They are all normalized. They are all high fidelity. And they're all accessible for models to train on. What they do is they use machine learning to predict the future 60 days out for their total addressable market in the United States. And that's how they get 98% of the things that they offer to 99% of Americans in 48 hours or less. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, one of the things that might interest you, you may or may not be aware of it, but people in my industry, the data center industry, networking data centers, are actually starting to treat the data center and the operational technology as a factory, right? Like. Those things spit off a ton of data too, humidity, pressure, temperature, you know, all these things. And they all affect the production of the ability to deliver bits around. And so it's interesting to see these worlds converging. Well, I was at Omron. So Omron built a new facility, Center of Excellence here in Dallas. And it's right next to the airport. And they invited us over to tour the facility. It's basically where all of their sample operations are. Mm-hmm. And we were walking around and they, we were in the AGV area. So they were showing us all their new AGV technology. And I was with the product engineer. And as we're walking around, the AGV is going, you know, so they basically had a pick and place robot that was moving parts off and plotting on a st- uh, pallet. And then they had AGVs going around moving raw materials mm-hmm. over to the end of the production line. And I said to the operator, I said to the product engineer, I said, what is the value add that your AGV can provide to your customers? Not the function that they're buying it for, but the value add. And he said, well, you know, honestly, I haven't thought about that. And I said, that AGV is collecting data about the layout of their facility 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It sees everything Everything, all day long. They're using LIDAR in this case. I said, you know what a value add you could provide? You could tell your client whether or not their floor layout is optimized. You could tell them whether or not their AGV paths are optimized. And you could see the light bulb go off, right? It's the same thing in the data center component. One of the things I say, a Tesla car is not just a car. It is the most advanced and expensive IoT sensor in the world. The most valuable thing that Tesla gets from the Tesla vehicle is not what I paid for it when I bought it. It's all the data that car collects 24 hours a day, seven days a week data that can be sold to municipalities on where the potholes are, <laughs> where the potholes are, which lights aren't running correctly, human yeah. behavior and drive, you name it, the whole yeah. night, right? It's the data is the most valuable commodity. And at least you guys understand it. Yeah. Let's look out to the future a little bit. I, I can sense this kind of like, I don't know, this energy that you have that you, you wish everybody would do stuff as fast as you do them. Correct. <laughs> and so we look out at the American manufacturing situation and looking at becoming re-energizing the manufacturing. Which, by the way, there is is a plethora of evidence that that is exactly what's happening. Yeah. So so I'd love to to talk to you, have you talk about that. And then 
I'd like to answer, ask a question, which is if you could you know, be magic and push some of the dominoes down, if you could nudge a few of the dominoes to make this really go faster, what would those dominoes be? Number one, I would immediately overnight make manufacturing leaders. So the boards of directors who lead all the largest manufacturers, I would make them replace their CEOs with CEOs with technology backgrounds. So mm. overnight, get rid of everybody, you know, Jim Farley, who's the CEO at Ford. I'm sure he's an outstanding marketer, but he's a marketing guy. He's not a technology guy. Elon Musk is a, he's an alien from the future. Okay. You know, he knows everyone's engineering job better than any engineer knows. Mary Barra is actually an engineer mm. at General Motors, yeah. but Jim Farley is not. All manufacturers need to be led by somebody with a technology background. Over, so I think you say that about politicians as well. <laughs> overnight, it needs to be engineers and technologists. Okay. That doesn't mean there aren't places for MBAs, but it's certainly not as the chief executive. Number two, I would have everybody focus on technology, technology first and product second. So right now, the inclination of a manufacturer when we want to digitally transform is let's go to somebody who has all the products we think we need. Let me go to Rockwell. Let me go to Siemens. They have service groups. And let's have them partner with us to solve our problem. No. What you want to do is you want to go to an agnostic architect who can help you design a technology infrastructure first, then go find the products that meet your minimum technical. Do you know any of those? Yeah, well, that's us. And that's but those those are all of our partners as well. If you look at all the integrators who partner with us, if you're looking at Galleris Industrial Solutions out of Ireland, or you're looking at Skellig Automation, or you're looking at any, you know, G5 yeah. Consulting, any of these companies, they're all agnostic. And the reason why is it's the same reason if I go to a doctor and I've got a brain issue and my doctor makes a recommendation to me about some new groundbreaking surgery that I need, he's going to cut my head open with some machine that Siemens developed or Omron, for example. And I find out that he's getting a $10,000 kickback for making that resume right. recommendation. That's going to, I, that's not what I, I want to know what's best for me. Yeah. The agnostic architect who's focused on technology first is going to tell you what's best. Then you make decisions. You do cost benefit analysis beyond best. Okay. So number two, I'd have people focus on technology. Okay. okay. Number three, first and foremost, what is the reason we want to be a digital company? When I give keynote addresses, I'm doing one in, at Mass MEP, and the governor of Massachusetts is going to be there. And I'm going to literally address the governor directly. And I'm going to say, I want every time you go talk to a manufacturing leader here in your state, I want you to ask them this question. What is your digital strategy? I want you to ask that question. And if they can't give you that answer in three sentences or less, I want you to say to them, you don't have a digital strategy. And I'm going to say that directly to the governor. I want organizations to start asking themselves why do we want to be a digital company? And if you can't answer that question, then it means you don't have the technologist in the room to answer it for you. Yeah, I'm surprised that any manufacturer that went through COVID doesn't have an answer to that question. I would have thought it'd be obvious that you'd be stunned. You'd be stunned. Yeah, you would be uh, absolutely stunned. If they give you a 60-page PowerPoint, that's not a strategy. Here's our digital strategy. No, that's not a strategy. If everyone in your organization can't recite from memory, what the digital strategy is, you don't have one because every person in the organization is a node in an ecosystem. If they don't know how they're interoperating in that ecosystem, well, then you don't have a strategy you, or you didn't communicate it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think most people wouldn't be able to answer that question. What yes. is your digital strategy? And but is, you go ahead is, and ask, ask anybody a test. I'm going to start. You ask yeah, anybody. right. Oh, interesting. Okay. You ask anyone yeah. at Amazon, anyone at Tesla, and they'll be able to answer it. Wow. Ask anyone at Volkswagen, ex, in Volkswagen America, ask anyone at Planet of the Future at Toyota, ask anyone at St. Cobain who works in their ceramics business. You ask the companies who are high on the digital maturity yeah. assessment where they've got a score of four or five on their digital strategy and everyone can recite it. Hey, Walker, I mean, this has been an amazing conversation. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. And if people want to get a hold of you, although you did admit you don't actually read your own messages, yeah. but if people want to get a hold of Intellect or 4.0 Solutions or you, what's the best, how do people find you online? So I do, if you DM me on Twitter, I do get that. So of all my social media, the only social media that I actually manage is my Twitter. So that's I, Walker D. Reynolds. My LinkedIn, 
my email. I just get too many messages. I have a team that goes through all that stuff. I do answer LinkedIn messages if the team says, hey, Walker, you need to answer this one. And they send it to me. The best place to go to get a hold of me is to go either go to Twitter, message me on Twitter, on LinkedIn. You can go to IIoT.university. That's where 4.0 Solutions is. We have a contact link there. That goes to the entire team. If somebody emails contact, every person in our organization gets that email, including me. We have a Discord server. You know, if people say, hey, they want to become part of the community, where should they go? The first thing they should do is sign up for our Discord server. We have a Discord server with about 5,000, 6,000 members from in the industry 4.0 channels, you know, basically any topic you can think of, machine learning, vision, whatever. We have channels on basically every single topic. It's a who's who, you know, Arlen Nipper, you know, you name it, you name any of the biggest names in the industry, they're in there. And that's a great place to go and get answers about digital transformation. You can go to our YouTube channel, 4.0 Solutions, which is where all of our public content is. But let me, let me say this, Matt, I love your podcast. Yeah. I listen to a lot of content. Some of it I absolutely love. I love all of your guys' stuff. One of the things that really frustrates me, and I say this all the time, when it comes to digital media, there's a lot of people doing media who aren't asking the most important questions before they ever get on camera. And that is, number one, why should anyone listen to me? (laughs) Number two, what am I going to say? Number three, what are they going to hear? And number four, what will the audience say is the most valuable thing I said? So if anyone is listening to this podcast and you want to get into media, Please rewind that. Listen to those four questions. If you ask those four questions before you produce anything, that I guarantee you, you will provide value to your audience if you do those four things. Awesome life advice and podcast advice. Yes. It's clear that you and your team ask those questions. That's awesome. What I to say. Thank you, Walker. We'll put all those links in the show notes. But again, Walker, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure, man. Thank you. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.